Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The idea of a Western civilization looms large in the popular imagination, but it's no longer taken seriously in academia. In her book, The West, A New History in 14 Lives, historian Nisha McSweeney examines why the West won't die, and in the process dismantles ahistorical concepts like the clash of civilizations and the notion of a linear progression from Greek and Roman ideals to those of our present day. In other words, from Plato to NATO. Through biographical portraits of figures both well-known and forgotten, Herodotus and Francis Bacon, Lavilla and Phyllis Wheatley, Tullia de Aragona and Alkindi, McSweeney assembles a history that resembles less of a grand narrative than a spiderweb of influences. Successive empires, whether Ottoman, Holy Roman, British, or American, built up self-mythologies in the service of their expansionist, patriarchal, or later, racist ideologies. Nisha McSweeney is a classical archaeologist and ancient historian who teaches at the University of Vienna, and she joins us today to talk about why the West has been such a dominant idea, and on what values we might instead base a new vision of contemporary Western identity. Thanks so much for talking to me, Nisha. You're very, very welcome. So much ink has been spilled about the idea of the West, Western civilization, grand narratives, big history. Why did you want to write a book about the West? I wanted to really tackle these grand narratives head on, right? I mean, because I think we we all think we know what these grand narratives are about what the West is and about where the West comes from. Um, but, But we haven't really stopped to consider them for a long time and we just take them all for granted they're everywhere all around us they are in western civ classes but they're also in children's books and movies they're all around us and so what i really wanted to do was to um, pick them apart a little bit and see whether these narratives stood up um, to scrutiny for example we take for granted that the ancient world of Greece and Rome left a historical and cultural legacy to the modern West, and that this is a legacy that has been transmitted through the centuries to today, to the 21st century. Um, But actually, when when we stop to think about it, I think most people are aware that there is is a bit of a break in transmission. Um, There was several centuries, especially during the early medieval period, where a lot of that classical knowledge and culture was lost, and it had to be rediscovered or in different ways in the Renaissance. And I think most people are aware of that. And even though we know it, we tell it as if that never happened, as if there wasn't a break in the line, there wasn't a gap. And yet when you pick it apart and you sit down and you talk to people, they, they know there was a gap. Um, so one of the other things that I wanted to do in this book was to ask why. Why are we papering over stuff that we know um, and why are we still telling a story which we, we know is not completely true? So why do you think we are still telling that story? Uh, we're telling the story because it is ideologically um, useful to do so. It, and it has been ideologically useful to do so. So we need an origin myth for the West. Everybody needs to be able to say where they came from. And it's true also for something like the West, even an abstract entity. We need to have a a story, an origin myth to explain um, where how the West exists and where, where, where it came from. So I think 
it's useful in that sense, but it's also useful because it explains Western dominance, global dominance um, today and over the centuries. The idea of an elevated, of a specially um, important, specially valuable historical and civilizational line is used as a way to explain and justify why the West is um, more powerful than the rest of the world. Um, and it has been used to do that historically, especially over the course of the kind of the early modern to modern periods um, during the period of European expansionism and imperialism. Um, and that was when this this narrative of Western civilization really came into its own. It became a justification for European imperialism. Now, the trouble is today in the 21st century, um, you know, most of us in the modern West don't want to justify European imperialism anymore or white supremacy or um, oppression in various different forms. That's not what we think of as the modern West. Um, and yet we still still tell the story which justifies these things. Um, and so that's why I think it is time for us to rethink this story. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of, of big history is really a flattening of history where you you look back and you think of, you know, ancient Rome as cohesive, you know, ancient Greece, the Ottoman Empire, Christendom as cohesive. But in fact, like from the jump, these were all very, very different groups of people. And often the way they conceived of themselves, as you said, was different from the way we conceive of them now. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, because this is the basis of what so much of today's rhetoric is is based on, especially from like the far right, the actual facts of ancient Greece and the ways the actual facts of ancient Rome, like one, are not cohesive in and of themselves as like Greece slash Rome, <laughs> but also like within Greece. And then after the slash Rome, it also just doesn't fit. Yeah, totally. And the more you, you delve into it, the more of this richness you, you, you discover. I mean, so the ancient Greek world is... Um, um, you know, my special interest. It's what I, I work on mostly. And I mean, we, we, it's very easy to forget when you talk about ancient Greece, there's, there's no such thing in antiquity as ancient Greece. What you have is literally thousands of independent city states and territories who are all doing their own thing and aligning themselves variously with, with you know, with different people. Um, and they, you know, they are, a bit Greek, they're a little bit non-Greek, they are, you know, Greek in varying degrees, they're shades of Greekness, like they're shades of grey, and there are Greek communities in what is modern-day Afghanistan, and there are Greek communities in what is modern-day Sudan, and they are considered just as Greek as somebody sitting in Athens, and we've we've lost sight of that, I think, when we look back to Greek antiquity, we kind of, we only see Athens, and we don't see the Greeks of Sudan, and we don't see the Greeks of Afghanistan. Um, so I wanted to kind of go back and catch some of that the real diversity of antiquity um, and also the real diversity of their voices too um, so I mean I started with Herodotus he's the kind of the main he's the he's the subject to my first chapter and he writes ostensibly this history of the wars of Greece you know in scare quotes against Persia but actually what he's writing is something much more complex and it's it's very easy to pick up a copy of Herodotus or to watch a a film I mean I guess it's an old film now like the you know the 300 and think that this is a story of Europe against Asia East versus West you know Greeks versus barbarians but actually the more you read Herodotus the more you see that this is this is not his story his story is about complicated cultural interactions 
connections, the backstories of different groups of people, how different groups of people are connected, um, their different customs in different places, similarities um, and differences. Um, and, and that's his story, really. Um, it's about mobility and, and change much more than cultural clash. And this is something I feel like, you know, many people have misread Herodotus for thousands of years and we need to be um, reading him properly again. And then if we move into the Roman world, I mean, again, it is it is a much more diverse ancient world than we tend to see. We tend to think of the Romans as white. We tend to think of them as European. And uh, several Roman emperors were themselves from North Africa, were from Syria. They are a lot more, a much more diverse bunch of people than we um, tend to imagine. One of the fascinating parts of your book for me was picking up where sort of my classical education left off. Um, I thought it was very interesting that you spoke of how different people drew the lines of civilizational inheritance in different ways at different times, especially in that kind of like lacuna between the end of civilization as we say, in the White West versus like the, the the Renaissance or when it was reconstructed. But in fact, like during that period, there were a lot of different people doing a lot of different lines of inheritance according to whatever fit their, I guess, their ideological needs at the time, their their goals for more power. Absolutely. And it's happening at every stage of the process. So even back in antiquity, I mean, we might think of, you know, the ancient Greeks and Romans as Western, and we tend to think of them as, as European or as white, but that's not how they would have seen themselves. I mean, like, again, if we, we know that the Roman Empire was an empire that had, yeah, bits in Europe, but it also had bits in Africa and bits in Asia. So it was a really transcontinental uh uh, entity, and yet we still think of it as primarily European. Um, so the lines of what would have constituted us and them were very different in, in antiquity. And, and then as we move into the medieval period, these lines exactly, as you say, vary all the time. Um, and so we like to sometimes think about medieval Christendom as being aligned with uh, Europe in the medieval period, especially in the context of the Crusades, for example. That is something, um, the Crusades, we, we think of them as uh, a period where kind of European Christianity was ranged against Islam in Western Asia. But actually, if we look back, that's that's simply not true. A lot of the conflicts are within Christendom, so within different different types of Christianities, and you have the huge um, split between the Latin Western Church, which uh, looks to Rome and the Pope, and you've got the Eastern Greek Church, which looks to the Patriarchate in Constantinople. Um, and this is also, uh, you know, a focus for crusading and for the sack of Constantinople in uh, 1204. The lines of civilizational division then were driven right down the middle of Europe between Eastern and Western Europe and between Western and Eastern Christianity, not between Europe and Asia, for example. So that, that was a very different line. Um, and then, you know, a few hundred years later, we're looking at um, especially another religious uh, conflict between Catholics and Protestants within Europe as well. Um, and the lines of civilizational distinction were pretty fluid at this point. And we might want to see Christendom again as ranged against the Islamic empire of the Ottomans based in modern day Turkey. And there are certainly um, people within the 17th century who are writing about that. Um, but at the same time, we also see these threads of diplomacy um, between especially the Protestants in Northern Europe and the Muslim Ottoman Empire. 
kind of encircling Catholic Central Europe. And that, again, is a very different civilizational setup than what we imagine today of kind of Europe being one coherent thing. Um, and so I think it's super interesting and important for us to acknowledge that ideas of us and them and who is the West and who is the rest um, and which civilizations were where, those have changed from century to century, from generation to generation. And it is completely normal for us to want to redraw those boundaries now and for us to rethink those definitions now as well. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about um, Al-Kindi, who was a figure I had never encountered before, who sort of posited a much different one of these lines uh, of civilization. And in a way, I think, you know, makes the strong case that, well, actually, like you could draw a strong line from the ancient world to the Arabic world that's much stronger than the ancient world to like England, say. Yeah, I, and I think you can. I think, you know, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The the line of civilizational inheritance from, you know, especially Greek antiquity, it, it runs east more strongly than it runs west definitely, um, for centuries. Um, and a lot of Greek uh, literature, a lot of Greek learning and scholarship and science and philosophy, um, it's only preserved today because it was preserved in the medieval um, Islamic world and primarily in Baghdad, which was the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, which was this incredible super state which stretched um, from, you know, Xi'an in China across to Morocco in North Africa. And the figure of Al-Kindi was, he was um, new to me when I started doing research for this book. And he was so exciting to read about because he is this brilliant scholar who writes about mathematics. He writes about theology and the nature of God. He writes about physics and lenses and the, the properties of light. But he also writes about how you can remove stains from your dirty laundry and about, <laughs> how, you know, how you should prepare honey wine, which helps your, your knees. Um, and so he's this fantastic figure. Um, but one of the things he also does is really argue that knowledge is not bounded by civilizational borders or by racial borders or by countries, that knowledge belongs to all of humanity. It's a very kind of complicated philosophical um, explanation for why um, other Arabs should engage with especially um, ancient Greek learning. Um, but then he also writes a kind of uh, a more kind of popular story for perhaps those who don't really want to read the complex philosophical theorizing that he's also writing. Um, and he says, well, actually, you know, we should be engaging with the ancient Greek world because they are related to us as well. Um, and he posits this kind of mythological family line where the ancestor of the, of the Greeks, um, is a brother of the ancestor of the Arabs, um, and that they're kind of long lost, uh, tribe, long lost brothers, fraternal tribes, and they kind of are joined together when Alexander the Great comes back into the East. Finally, that is a, a joining of the two sides of the family. Um, and I think that's, that's wonderful. So he tries to make the argument theoretically. And then when that doesn't work, he tries to make the argument with a nice kind of a fairy tale and a story. And I, I love that he's doing these two different approaches for the same ends. It's almost like a middle point or like a transition point in how we think of inheritance, because for a long time, it really is based on genealogy, right? And then today, we think of it more in the more modern sense as like an inheritance of ideas rather than genes. 
Well, I, th- I think we still do both, right? And I think there is a there is a tension here that um, we we do think of the transmission of ideas and the inheritance of ideas, but we often talk about it using language of genealogy and um, biology sometimes, right? You know, being the heirs of this and the ancestors or descendants of that. And I think the more um, in in the corners of especially political rhetoric, which are um, more and more kind of violently and obviously political, especially um, from the far right. It, it is still a biological um, argument that Western civilization is kind of racially and biologically defined, not just culturally defined as well. So the slippage of civilizational and cultural inheritance to a biological inheritance, that is... That was another thing that I wanted to touch on in the book as well, that there is, it's sometimes the emphasis is more on one and sometimes the emphasis is more on the other. Um, but usually in those cases where we have the emphasis on of a more biological lineage, that is usually done um, for political purposes um, so that you can exclude some people from the, the from the complex of Western civilization. And you can say that these people do not belong because biologically they do not belong. I could not think of a more perfect transition to my next question, which is (laughs) when that happened. But I want to skip to 1776 as a brutish American, because the political implications of that time are super interesting. And you talk about how the embrace in the British colonies of ancient Rome was very different from how ancient Rome was seen in the Spanish colonies in Northern and in Southern America. This just to me was like a perfect illustration of like the political expediency of this kind of grand narrative, how you can try to have it both ways. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting what's happening between kind of Northern America and Central and and Southern America at precisely the the same time. And, um, you know, you've got the... um, revolutionary independence movement in in northern america which wants to hark back especially to the roman world as a model for what america could be in the future um based on ideas of republicanism um and also based on um ideas of direct uh, ancestry that the uh north america is the heir of Western Europe, which is the heir of um, ancient Rome, and that you've got this translation or transition of power and civilization ever further westwards. So there is that model, and um, the Romans are used time and time again in revolutionary rhetoric as as something to be aspired to. And you've got that in uh, the architecture of um, the early United States, in in the very fundamental structure of the political system, it's hardwired into there. Um, And then when we contrast it with what's going on in Central and Southern America, because of the strong associations between Spanish imperialism and the Roman Empire, the idea of Roman heritage is, is a lot less appealing somehow, right? So the, the Spanish Empire really heavily drew on Roman um, models and Roman rhetoric in constructing its imperial umbrella and its imperial uh, image. And so when you get independence movements um, acting against 
the the Spanish. They don't they don't want to be Roman because that's what the Spanish are. And who they look to instead is they look to the ancient Greek world as an as an alternative model, a model which is based on um, participatory democracy, um, for example, rather than kind of Roman patrician republicanism. Um, and I think that it's very interesting that two different parts of the Americas tended to go in very different directions when they were constructing their own civilizational inheritances. And that was both of them largely in a reaction to what they were trying to uh, gain independence from. Could you talk a bit more about um, like the racial politics that are at play here too when we think about how the West is used? You write that it is an ideological sleight of hand required to justify both the American Revolution and the inequalities in North American society simultaneously. Can you say a little bit more about that and how the West accomplishes that? Yeah, so this is also about changing ideas of what what the West is. I think there's a very interesting kind of tipping point between two of the characters that I talk about. And at the very beginning of the 18th century, um, you've got texts written about um, one extraordinary woman called Ninjinga, who was a queen in what is modern day Angola in West Africa. Um, and who very successfully fought against Portuguese imperialism. But not not only is she kind of a, a warrior and a soldier and a general, but she's also a very skilled diplomat. And um, she writes letters to the Pope and she's got kind of her ambassadors all over the world. But she, an African queen, can be described at the opening of the 18th century as an heir of Western civilization. And I think that's really interesting that because she embraces Christianity and because she is able to um, insert herself amongst the, the kind of the constellation of nations and be accepted as a, as a, as a queen in, um, in the European, especially mindset, she gets to be an heir of Western civilization. She is described as, as uh, wise as a Greek and as chaste as a Roman, and that's okay. But kind of a generation later, you know, as, as you're saying, as we move into the kind of the middle and the end of the of the 18th century, that kind of thing is no longer possible. And I kind of explore that with um, the figure of Phyllis Wheatley, who is um, an enslaved African American woman, a very young woman, um, who is kind of a literary superstar. She's a poet, and she's celebrated as a poet, and um, engages herself very strongly with. Greek and Roman literature. Um, and yet she is never fully on the inside. She writes against uh, very powerfully against um, slavery, and that's never really taken up. And she dies in tragic circumstances at the end. And so, so it's, I think it's really interesting that something happens between the, the life of Njinga and the life of Phyllis Wheatley, that it is possible for an African queen to be an heir of Western civilization at the time of Ninjinga. And it's not possible for um, an African-American woman to be part of Western civilization 50 years later. And something happens in that in that 50-year time period to racialize what Western civilization is. Now, it's, I'm not saying that there are no racial elements before the opening of the 18th century. There are. There are definitely racial elements to it. But it's during that period that the switch flips and it becomes absolutely impossible for non-white people to be part of Western civilization um, by that time. And it's got to do with this justification of the American independence movement as a movement which is against imperialism, British imperialism, but not against enacting imperialism um, on the indigenous American population. It is a revolutionary movement which argues for freedom 
for themselves, but is very happy to take away the freedom and liberties um, of others. Um, and the way, as you mentioned, this sleight of hand, the way this is done is by saying freedom from imperialism is is very important, but only for the people who are heirs to this glorious tradition of Western civilization. And it, it became a racial rather than a cultural definition. So it couldn't be something that you could buy into or become. You had to either be born into it or not. Yeah, a lot has changed since Phyllis Wheatley, thankfully. <laughs> Slavery, for <laughs> yeah, instance, thankfully, yeah. no longer on the books. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, a lot hasn't you know, changed in American society, one could say in, in Western society, quotes also around that. What do you think is, I guess, left over from this legacy of the West, even of the West as sort of like this racialized concept? Do you think it still is, even among people who don't embrace, you know, the, let's say, the far right idea of Western imperialism? I think it is an idea that is very hard to kick because it's been around for such a long time and it's been such a powerful idea and so pervasive that it's very hard to think out of it or think beyond it, um, which is why I think it requires a, a conscious effort on the part of people who I now, you know, admit it like myself, who want to see the West differently and think the West is fundamentally not the same anymore. Um, so I think we have to we have to do the work of rethinking what Western history really is and uh, recognizing what the modern West really is now and reimagining what the history of the West should be to fit the identity of the West at the moment. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. And there are certainly lots of people within the West who um, would rather look backwards rather than forwards, who would rather imagine um, the West of the future as much more strongly rooted with, with the West of the past. Um, and we can see that not just in, in, in the Americas, but also across Europe as well, um, very strongly. Yeah, I think when you say the West of the past, it's interesting, too, because like I think of sort of the West of the past that these bad actors, I'll come out and say it, are embracing <laughs> is is more like a, an 18th, 19th century, early 20th century idea of what the West is. But like, in a way, I think your whole book is pointing to the idea of like, you can easily look to the past, to the Western past and read a much different story there and read something that has, you know, instead of ethnic, racial characteristics, much different principles at its heart. What do you think those principles are? Like, what do you think Western civilization's saving grace is? Even if you look at the, the kind of the old story of Western civilization, something which is at the heart of it is transformation and change and movement. So you get like this idea of civilization moving from Greece to Rome and Rome to Northern Europe and Europe to Northern America. It's still moving and it's different people every time. So at the core of that, it's change, it's innovation, it's transformation and it's mobility, human mobility, um, as well as cultural mobility. Um, and then if we look back at what is the real history of the West, it is, again, it's a story of mobility and innovation and rethinking history constantly at different times and rethinking identity. And I think if there's one thing that we should hold on to or try and celebrate, it, it's that, um, it's that agility, it's that dynamism. 
right? And if we want to look back to the real history of the West, we should hold on to that sense of dynamism and the embracing of change and make that as a cornerstone for, for, for the future. It is a diverse past um, and it is a, a past that is open and flexible um, and changeable. And this is something that we should embrace as perhaps the greatest Western tradition. Right. Writing this new, more inclusive, grand narrative of Western history, in a way, kind of annihilates the idea of the West to begin with, because it embraces so much <laughs> more than the West. So in a way, this new grand narrative is like a subversive way of saying no more grand narratives. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a nice way to to kind of tie it all together. Yeah, it isn't simple. There are no more grand narratives. But at the core of it, there are some core principles and some ideas and it's about who would who would want to align themselves with them and what it absolutely isn't about is purity um, and and stability and immobility that is antithetical to everything western and you have got models of civilizations which rest on purity and which elevate this idea of cultural purity um but that is fundamentally not 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 what the west is um and that's something to be celebrated we have links in the show notes to nisha mcsweeney's new book the west a new history in 14 lives we'll be back next week till then take care and stay sharp (laughs) 